Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student in international relations at the University of Sussex, and I'm the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome our today's host, Felix Behrenskötter, senior lecturer in international relations at SOAS University of London and board member of the EISA. So welcome to this episode of Voices, in which we will be discussing research on the practice of scientific data sharing during global health pandemics. My name is Felix Behrenskötter, I'm based at SOAS University of London, and I'll be your host today. The recent COVID-19 pandemic has once again brought into sharp relief the importance of international cooperation in the field of medical or biological science. Faced with a deadly disease that knows no borders, one might expect that scientists from across the world will readily share information about the nature of the virus, how to contain its spread, and develop protection against it. But is that really so? What are the hurdles, the politics really in this space that compromise the perhaps idealistic view of smooth cooperation in the name of science and humanity? How to overcome the barriers to data sharing? To shed light on these questions, I'm delighted to have as my guest today, Professor Stefan Elbe. Stefan Elbe is Professor of International Relations and Director for the Center of Global Health Policy at the University of Sussex where he has been based for almost 20 years. He's been working in the field of global health for at least that long, as can be seen from his long list of publications. One of these is an article entitled Bioinformational Diplomacy, Global Health Emergencies, Data Sharing and Sequential Life, which was published in the European Journal of International Relations, Volume 27, Number 3, which won the EISA's Best Article in EGIR Award in 2022. Announcing the prize, the award committee noted, and I quote, Stefan Elbe's timely article addresses one of the most pressing transformations the world faces today. The committee praised the remarkable ways in which theoretical boundary stretching meets outstanding empirical engagement, and it was impressed by the article's transdisciplinary heavy lifting. So congratulations again, uh, Stefan, on this award and to unpack what the committee found so compelling about your piece. And of course, I read it as well, and I fully agree that it is a, a much-deserved award. Um, I really look forward to our conversation today. So welcome, Stefan, to Voices. Thank you, Felix, and thank you for having me. And thank you very much to the prize committee for the for the kind gesture. I'm slightly embarrassed by, by the things you have just said, but it's, it's very gratefully received. So um, why, why don't we why don't we start then uh, with uh, some some background before we go into um, what you discuss in this article, um, namely when and how did you become interested in the politics of science or scientific data sharing or global health more more generally? 
So in other words, how does the topic that you that you look at in this particular article relate to your previous work? Yeah, so I actually became interested in this topic um, prior to COVID-19 when we were researching a different health threat, which was called H5N1 or, or bird flu, as we as we frequently um, called it, you know, and this was this was a virus which the World Health Organization was warning at the time had a 50% mortality rate in human beings. So, so it was a very dangerous virus. And so the world was kind of scrambling to figure out how, how could we protect people if, if this becomes a, a pandemic. And as I was researching this area, there was something that, that really piqued my interest because um, the state of Indonesia was um, launching and initiating a new diplomatic doctrine uh, in the middle of all of this. And, and the name of the doctrine was viral sovereignty. And so, you know, as a scholar of international relations, of course, you know, I knew about sovereignty. It's one of the core institutions of international relations, but I had never really thought about sovereignty in relation to viruses and, and deadly viruses. So, you know, I was, what's going on here? I wanted to, I wanted to figure out more. Uh, and as I began to research this, I realized this is really all about vaccines, you know, and, and when there's a pandemic, everybody wants kind of access to life-saving vaccines. In order to make the vaccines, though, you actually have to have access to the viruses themselves. You need biological specimens or samples of the virus. The country at the time with the most human cases of infection with H5N1 was Indonesia. Um, and so everybody wanted access to Indonesian virus samples to make these life-saving pandemics. The problem that the world unexpectedly encountered is that Indonesia stopped sharing these virus samples with the rest of the international community. And it did so under the doctrine of viral sovereignty. So what Indonesia was arguing was saying, well, these viruses, uh, they're circulating within the sovereign borders and the sovereign jurisdiction of Indonesia. And therefore it is a sovereign decision for the state of Indonesia whether we share these virus samples with the rest of the international community. And the decision Indonesia was making at the time was not to share. And of course, this caused huge consternation, even a sense of panic because everybody wanted access to these, to these viruses to make the vaccines. But it soon also became clear that actually Indonesia had, you know, some pretty good reasons for why they were, why they were doing this. Because of course, from their point of view, the big issue was vaccine equity. So in the early stages of a pandemic, there's never enough vaccine to go around for the, for the whole kind of global population. And low and middle income countries in particular knew that they were often at the back of the line for getting access to these technologies. So Indonesia felt aggrieved. You're expecting us to share our virus samples. You will use these virus samples to make life-saving vaccines, but only populations in high income countries will get these vaccines. And this is unfair. And so we will stop sharing until there is a more equitable international system. This provoked, you know, many years of high-level international kind of diplomacy, and a new system was eventually found uh, for pandemic for pandemic food that was more equitable. So it was a really interesting story of how you could almost kind of use deadly viruses as diplomatic bargaining chips, you know, for for working towards greater equity in the international system. But while we were researching. This, there was always a kind of background problem that kept creeping up and popping up again. And that is that the vaccine technology was constantly evolving and advancing. It was clear that it would soon be possible 
to actually make these kind of vaccines without needing actual virus samples. We were moving into a world where we could quickly sequence the entire genetic code of a deadly virus, and we would soon be able to make vaccines using just that digital data. But this was such a thorny problem, how to deal with this data. You know, how would we control it? Would this data ultimately undermine the diplomatic position of low and middle income countries? Because if you no longer need access to the samples, their kind of diplomatic bargaining chips would be gone. So it was clear that moving forward over the next couple of years, this issue of sharing the data uh, would become as critical as the issue of sharing the virus. And that's how I got into this problem of scientific data sharing. Right, right. Um, I think that's fascinating. You already touched on a lot of core themes, I think, that we're going to come back to later. Um, but before we do so, I, I just wondered if you could say something about how this um, grew out of the work you've been doing uh, for the last you know, two decades almost, right? Because you've been working on global health for a long time. So, so this didn't come out of the blue. It, it wasn't just that one you know, global health emergency that, that, that piqued your interest, right? So the, the health issue that really piqued my attention initially and got me into this whole field was the global AIDS pandemic uh, that, you know, um, became a huge issue at the turn of turn of the century. And again, it was a kind of slightly unexpected thing when when it was the United Nations Security Council that eventually even met to discuss, um, you know, the threat that HIV AIDS poses to international peace and security in Africa. And again, as a scholar of international relations, of course, we all know about the Security Council and its special significance in international relations. But we weren't really accustomed to the Security Council talking about health issues. That was that was quite new territory. Um, and so that's kind of how I got interested uh, in the international politics of health. Um, and, you know, I would add that as You know, when I received my training in international relations uh, many moons ago, you know, we hardly did any health at all. It was kind of low politics. It was not not really seen as a, as a big issue. And clearly that was changing. And amidst all of my research into HIV AIDS, it just it's just seemed like a almost like a whole epidemic of epidemics. You know, after HIV AIDS, we had the first SARS outbreak of 2002, 2003. We had H5N1, our bird flu. We had h 1 And one, you know, swine flu, we had Ebola, Zika, COVID-19, of course, and, and so forth. And throughout all these kind of epidemics, we always had an intensification of this, of this problem of, of data sharing. You know, the data was becoming more readily available from a scientific point of view, but there were always huge problems uh, in, in getting this data to share. So on the one hand, you know, all of this kind of comes out of my work uh, on, on, on global health that I've been doing for many years. Um, it also connects a little bit actually, uh, to earlier work. So not many people know that before I, I turned to health, I actually, my PhD was a lot more philosophical and theor theoretical. I was dealing with the work of, of Friedrich Nietzsche and, and his ideas of Europe, you know, so a lot about kind of secularism, the death of God. Um, and you, you know, so I became interested also in the question, you know, what happens to politics after the death of God, so to speak. And this kind of opens up a trajectory on, on looking at the politics of, of life itself, right? And so there's a kind of, there's a lineage there from Nietzsche to Foucault uh, and Foucault's interest in the politics of life, biopolitics. So when you're studying the international politics of health, what, you, what you're really doing is, is you're studying global biopolitics. 
Right, right. Well, I wasn't aware of the link to Nietzsche that, you know, this is simmering in the background of your work. That, that I might be tempted to uh, ask a question later about that. Um, but uh, um, although, of course, the, the sort of philosophy um, background and grounding is a, is a really important one. And so I, I don't think it's actually uh, insignificant in, in this regard um, uh, to, to ask a question about interdisciplinarity. Um, but uh, maybe not so much about philosophy, but but your your interdisciplinary uh, approach um, in bridging political science or international relations and the hard sciences, right? Um, which is of course not easy. Um, and uh, so I was wondering if you could could say a little bit about how you approached this and what the challenges were to do this interdisciplinary work. Yeah, so uh, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> it was it was challenging. So of course, you know, in 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 the first instance, you just have to acquire uh, actually different thematic and subject specific knowledge. You have to learn about you know viruses and vaccines and vaccine technologies. And you know, I was trained as an IR scholar. This is not something that uh, I was deeply familiar with. So, so that's a challenge just to understand, you know, empirically what's, what's going on in this domain. And, um, you know, so we're talking literally like I'm, I'm buying textbooks you know, off the internet into kind of virology and health issues and just trying to kind of train myself up on this. Um, but it's, it's more than that, you know, like, like you said in your question, what you realize is that you're not just you know, dealing with different subject matter expertise, but it's, it's almost like, you know, as you move to the other social sciences and then to the hard sciences or, or the, you know, the life sciences, as, as I prefer to call them, it's almost like there's a different kind of epistemic gaze, the way they think about, uh, approach research, the questions they ask, the things they, they are attentive to and foreground are quite different from the things that we are accustomed uh, to doing, I think, in international relations. And so it's almost like you have to, to immerse yourself a little bit also in their culture. And, you know, the way I tried to do this was to kind of attend some of their workshops and, and conferences and strike up kind of relationships with, 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 with some of them just to learn more about how they think and, 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 um, deal uh, and address some of, some of these issues. And you end up learning despite the challenges, you know, you end up learning a lot actually about the power of disciplines. You become much more acutely aware of your own positionality as a kind of IR researcher. And you also become, um, acutely aware of some of the power differentials between disciplines. So you begin, it's not just that you have to navigate disciplinary challenges, but you also begin to realize actually the differential power, you know, issues of medicine, health, dealing with life and death questions like this gives this discipline and those fields huge kind of sociological and social power of knowledge that, that far exceeds kind of what, what we do in international relations and how we address that power imbalance. I haven't figured that out yet, but there's lots of us in the field kind of trying to think that through at the moment. But um, just just to follow up on this, did you have a sense that there was also a recognition that someone coming from a field with expertise in international politics actually had something really valuable to say, and that this was actually something that that wasn't just a, a you know a minor. Um, add on to to the life sciences, but actually that it was uh, you know is, is an equally valuable uh, field of knowledge, um, and that interdisciplinary work is actually really important. Did, did you get that sense also that recognition or openness from the other side? So I I think um, over the past couple of years there is growing recognition within the global health field 
that social science perspectives are 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 really uh, important, and not just international relations, also anthropology, for example, law, you know, other other disciplines. I th I think the challenge that that we face, though, is that those, you know, that openness still kind of comes through a quite technical gaze of those fields. So, you know, when they they will express interest in having social science perspectives that can, you know, how, how can we get more people to take their vaccines? For example, you know, this would be a kind of classic and we need social scientists to kind of do this, but for us as kind of critical security, critical international relations scholars, you know, those are not the questions that, that we are asking. We're asking questions about power inequity, uh, you know, justice, ethics, and, and, and so forth. And so I think that latter bit of work that is much more, more difficult, um, uh, to bring across. And, and that's, you know, that's work that we're doing. And many of us in the kind of global health politics community are doing, but you know, you cannot minimize the power differentials. Yeah. We're, we're up against and, strong, strong disciplines. And I think this sort of leads me to my, to my question of the political nature of information, right? Because in, in a way, if, you know, if you interact with scientists and all they see are sort of practical, technical problems and, and, and issues, and you approach this field through a political lens and through the lens of politics. So, you know, more broadly speaking, what would you say makes information political? Mm -hmm. There's probably a few different things I, I would say. So, you know, in one sense, you know, information can be really valuable, right? So if you think about, if we go to the kind of genetic sequence data that, that I was talking about in, in, in this article, you know, this is information that's, politically valuable in the sense that, of course, in a pandemic, governments are expected to do their utmost to protect their populations uh, against, um, you know, a pathogen. And so getting this information is a priority for, for, for governments. So there's a political value. There's immense commercial value. You know, this data is today being used to make diagnostics like we all did during COVID, you know, with the self-tests. Uh, making vaccines and medicines. So there's a lot of money uh, to be made off of this information. There's also um, academic value. You know, if you are the scientists who first discovers a new pathogen, sequences it, describes it, characterizes it, this is a career-defining and career-changing moment. And you will get a lot of, likely get a lot of citations, grants, and, and so forth. So, um, you know, information is political because it's valuable, And so there's politics about how that value is distributed. Yeah, yeah. But information is not just valuable, it's also dangerous, right? So in the case of this information, uh, it can have huge macroeconomic consequences. So a sequence indicating a new infectious pathogen can quickly rattle stock markets, can shave billions off of a stock market and you know all the consequences that that has. Um, can also lead to the introduction of travel bans, you know, as people avoid an area where an outbreak is happening, which can have huge economic ramifications for a country. And because we're dealing with, with, with deadly pathogens, you know, there are also biosecurity dimensions here. There are issues around who gets to see this data and use it if it can be used for bioweapons, for bioterrorism, for these kinds of issues. So, you know, There's dangers around the information as well. So the information is political because there's value. And so you have 
you have contestation about how that value is globally distributed, but you also have to manage the risks and the dangers that, that are associated with this data. Mm-hmm. And, and you focus specifically on what you call bioinformation in your, in your piece, which you present as a uh, fundamental ontoepistemological issue. Can you explain what you mean by that? And then maybe, you know, as a follow-up, you know, it, it talks about genetic sequence data. Again, you know, most IR scholars would have never heard of that term. So if you could just maybe clarify some of the core terminology here that you're, that, that underpins um, your piece, because that is the data or the information that you deal with in the sense of um, what are the barriers to sharing it and how can we overcome that? Yeah, so, you know, the genetic sequence data is, is literally just the data about the kind of the core bases or nucleotides uh, that make up, you know, a DNA molecule. So, you know, which is at the core of all kind of living human beings. And there are four different bases. And so it's, it's just this kind of the, the list of this of this characters. In the case of a virus like SARS-CoV-2, you know, which caused COVID-19, it's about 30,000 characters long, just text, textual characters. Uh, so this is the genetic sequence data. Um, and in one sense, I suppose you could say, well, this is just a scientific resource, you know, and we can kind of leave it to the to the scientists and the experts to, to deal with this data, to, to read it and to decode it. Um, but, you know, what, I, what I'm trying to point out in, in the article is that there's actually more to this, that this, this, this is not just a scientific resource. This is actually something that is bound up with the emergence of a new vision or understanding of of life itself, right? And this is why they're kind of also onto epistemological dimensions. So at the heart of all of this genetic sequence data is a particular understanding of life. And that is that life uh, is essentially uh, molecular, right? That life and living organisms are governed by kind of biochemical processes that unfold at molecular scale. So over the past century, we moved from an understanding of, you know, from the body down to the organs, down to the cell, down to individual atoms and molecules. Let's call this the kind of molecular vision of life. So it's an ontology of life. Life is biochemistry. Life is molecules interacting and evolving. At the same time, there's also an epistemological dimension to all this, because it's not just that we have these molecular building blocks, right? But it's that these the arrangement of these molecular building blocks are a kind of metaphorical code. Sometimes, you know, they call it the code of life, uh, but it's basically, it's a system of information. And so it's not just an ontology that life is molecular. It's also an epistemology that we can read life and decode life and make life legible through sequence. And so you take these two things together, the molecularization of life, and the informationalization of life, you put them together, you get a new understanding of life, life as a flow of molecular information. And so I call this, I call this sequential life. And it's a kind of a, it is, I would argue, a new kind of onto uh, epist- epistemology. Cool. And, and of course, it opens up, uh, just to connect to one of the earlier things we talked about, it opens up an interesting new axis or dimension of biopolitics. Because, of course, when Foucault talked about biopolitics, he was focusing on the body and on the population. But now we're going to the level of the molecular, which interacts with these axes. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. So what I was going to say is that, uh, so I think one can clearly see here how you merge your 
your interest in sort of the big philosophical questions and the kind of Foucauldian lens with um, those uh, bioscientific kind of uh, um, understandings of how the body is composed and and, and what matters in in, in life. Um, so that that sounds that sounds very a very productive um, uh, approach. But but okay, so. Okay, so we can see that this is data. Um, this is information that is quite fundamental, uh, that is valuable, potentially dangerous. Um, okay, and now we are, we're moving into the context of an outbreak of a deadly disease, of a pandemic, and your article uh, discusses um, various international initiatives for sharing this data, for making it so-called open access, right? Um so who initiated and drove these these regimes, these institutional arrangements to, to open up the data, to share it? Was it scientists? Um, was it government actors or more politically oriented actors? And, and how successful were they? So it was actually a mix of, of scientists and government actors. So at the, the big kind of turning point, I think, uh, in all of this uh came probably about two decades ago now, as we were approaching the point where for the first time in history, it would be possible to decode the human genome for the first time, right? So the entire kind of sequence uh, of, of human life. And this was, you know, at the time, sequencing was still quite slow. It was, took many years. Uh, and you also had a, you had a kind of race. They were private companies were trying to do this. And you also had more scientists working through publicly funded organizations. And there were huge fears at the time about, you know, what would happen to the sequence? Would the, would, would this be patented? Would it be privatized? Would it be kind of siloed off for commercial interests or was there a way to, to make it and keep it public? And so the scientists who were working through publicly funded efforts really were very conscious that they did not want it to become privatized. And so they came up with a new system of what are called public domain databases. So they said, we will create databases where all the scientists working on different parts of the human genome are going to share all the sequence data together in a centralized database. And they said, this would be crucial because they would have, by doing this, by putting it in a public database like this, they would effectively make it what in intellectual property terms is called prior domain. It becomes public. It just belongs to everybody. Once it's in the database, it's like, like a Beethoven symphony. You know, nobody can privatize it. It belongs, it belongs to the world. And so, you know, governments cooperated with this and they put up databases in, in, in the US, in, uh, in Europe, in Japan. And these are called public domain databases. They impose no further restrictions on the data. Any, you can, you could go up there right now with an internet browser, access the data, download it, pretty much do whatever you want to do with the data. So these are the public domain databases and they were the first. The problem is that during the kind of highly securitized context of a global health emergency, um, various actors are very reticent to make this data public and to use these open access things. And so the data was, was not flowing. And so more recently we've seen different types of international initiatives emerge that use very different systems. So they're also databases. They're also publicly accessible, but they use different mechanisms of data licensing. They're a little bit more like iTunes or Netflix that you don't, uh, you know, they're not giving the data away, but they're allowing you 
to view it you know, for the purposes of scientific research. But so we have we have a different we have a kind of a, a menu of different systems at the moment, and all of the systems have different advantages uh, and drawbacks. But in many ways, it is a classic example of or a classic problem of international relations, of international cooperation, of regimes, of 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 how how we get international cooperation in this in this crucial domain. And so. Um, even though you say, you know, we, we know that uh, international relations is, um, is uh, or starting normally from that there's a problem um, to, to bring about cooperation, that this is something that, that needs to be um, politically um, ne negotiated. Uh, from a sort of idealistic scientific perspective, these arrangements to share data, this institutional arrangement, that sounds very plausible. Right, it sounds, it sounds something that that shouldn't be um, affected uh, by other interests. But of course, that's not the case. So, um, you already mentioned in the opening some of the barriers um, to to sharing this bio information. Um, but but can you sort of quickly uh, go through what the main barriers are that you found in your research? Um, that that despite these these institutions being in place, still when it came to the pandemic or or you know or even beforehand. Um, there were still hurdles. Absolutely, right? So as you rightly say, the information is so critical now. You use it to identify new viruses and variants. You can do what's called molecular epidemiology. So you can track where and how these viruses are spreading just by comparing the sequences of different viruses. And of course, you can make the biomedical interventions. So, so the data is absolutely key. But all of this, you know, only works when the data is shared. So typically, any individual sequence is not actually that valuable to scientists. It's only when you begin to pool and collect all the different sequences of all the different viruses that you're gathering around the world into one kind of centralized bioinformational database that you could begin to generate all this, this value that you can, can generate with the sequences. And the kicker or the conundrum is that, you know, despite this very strong kind of global health rationale, often during outbreaks, this data is not shared. And the barriers that you were asking about are many. So I'll just give a couple examples. But for scientists, you know, they're traditionally concerned about being scooped. So if you sequence a new virus and you quickly share this data with the rest of the world, then you're exposing yourself to the possibility that other scientists might use that same data to publish much more quickly than you and get out there and, and kind of beat you to it. So traditionally, a lot of scientists would wait until publication before they share their data. And of course, publication could take a long time. So from a public health point of view, this is not, this is not a great outcome. For commercial actors, you know, there's, this is potentially commercially proprietary. They want to keep this data under wraps because it's the basis of how they're making their, their lucrative uh, biomedical intervention. So, so they don't necessarily want to share openly Or widely. Governments may prevent scientists from sharing this kind of data because they don't want to be labeled as an outbreak country, because they're concerned about the national security implications of the data, because of also intellectual property. They don't want to, you know, if you just give it to a kind of open database, you're effectively also giving something away that is potentially of, 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 of value. Um, so what we've seen repeatedly during recent outbreaks is that a lot of the data is actually withheld. And that's obviously bad for, for, for global health. And that's why um, 
you know, all of this uh, is is a problem, as as you rightly said at the beginning of your question. So there are there are. I mean, in a way, it shouldn't become uh, coming as a surprise, right, to an international relations scholar who who is used to understand um, international politics in terms of questions of recognition, power, uh, economic interests, security, and 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 all this. Um, but but it is fascinating to hear how this seeps into into this scientific um, field, um, uh, especially at a time where sharing would seem to be, you know, the most important and morally the right thing uh, uh, to do. But um, distrust seems to be, um, you know, uh, an issue here. And of course, uh, that's what realists would always say, right? Uh, distrust is the core issue that we need to understand. So did, did, you, also, did you also see that, that in a way, not trusting what happens with that data when the others are using it is one of the core problems here. Absolutely. You know, and it, in, a, in a sense, this is goes back to what we started with, with this notion of viral sovereignty, right? So initially, Indonesia was sharing virus samples of H5N1 in, in good faith with the World Health Organization for the purposes of, you know, improving scientific understanding of these viruses. But these virus samples were then also being passed on to industry, right, uh, to make to make vaccines. And, um, you know, when industry then got in touch with the Indonesian health minister and wanted to kind of sell back to them at a very high price vaccines that had been made on the basis of Indonesian virus samples, you know, you can understand how the Indonesians would be would be upset about that and why they would, you know, that would um, engender a lot of distrust in terms of you know how transparent is all of this actually and 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 so forth and so you know here I think it's also you know you just cannot escape the huge kind of north south inequities that exist in this field the kind of histories of of colonialism uh, extraction you know and and so the distrust is also about about biocolonialism and of course. When you're still dealing with physical specimens, you know, and, and samples, you can exert as a government some degree of control over, over their movement. But when you're just dealing with digital data, you know, which almost has no corporality, right? It's just, it's just textual characters that can be emailed. It's much harder to control it. And so, um, there's also suspicion, I think, for many low and middle income countries that all these kind of concessions that were diplomatically achieved towards greater equity could become easily undermined by the rise of this sequence data. If you just need the data, you know, what, what is your diplomatic bargaining position to push for, for greater equity? And, you know, there's also distrust about, you know, does this kind of stuff then flow into bioweapons programs and so forth? You know, that was expressed a lot um, at the time as well. And you also just have to really look at what's recently happened with, with COVID, where, again, you know, huge uh, international discrepancies in terms of access to vaccines and high-income countries often, you know, thinking about booster shots before lots of other countries even had any kind of access to the vaccines. And this, of course, is from a low- and middle-income country point of view, it just happens over and over and over again. And that's, I think, where the distrust comes from. Yeah, yeah, and of course, we we all remember the still ongoing, actually, um, blame game. You know about where where did the outbreak occur? Who's responsible? 
um, for the outbreak of COVID-19? You know, was it an accident on the market? Was it a lab? You know, the and the reputational costs that come with that, um, and probably also e economic costs. Uh, so, so, so there's a lot at stake here, um, clearly. And against this backdrop, in your article, you then coined the term bioinformational diplomacy. Uh, you know, which is also what the uh, what the prize committee uh, was was clearly impressed with. It's not just that you know you analyzed uh, the sort of attempts to share data, the hurdles, um, but also then against the the or, or with the understanding of the existing barriers, um, you describe scientists as uh, informal diplomats uh, to to deal with these barriers. Can you explain what you mean by this? I mean, in what sense? Can scientists engage in diplomacy? What 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 does that look like? Yeah, so you know, I, I suppose in one sense, as scholars of international relations, we are already familiar um, with the notion that scientists can have input into diplomatic processes. So you know, there was all the great work by Peter Haas historically around epistemic communities, for example, right? Or we all know for climate change. You know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change you know, also take scientific inputs and so forth. And we actually now have also a whole kind of subfield now on science diplomacy, right? Looking at how you can use diplomacy to further scientific cooperation, big international scientific projects, how you can uh, also use science as a way of building diplomatic bridges, you know, when... Um, when there's conflict, there's kind of, more, kind of more neutral forms of cooperation, right? But what I'm trying to say through bioinformational diplomacy is actually something a little bit different. So I'm kind of trying to trying to radicalize this a little bit and say, you know, actually we we need to think about scientists not just as people who kind of make epistemic inputs into formal governmental processes, but actually just to do their own scientific work. You know, they also have to kind of and uh, in, in, engage in a little bit of diplomacy. So they have to, you know, they have to get access to all these international resources in different countries, whether this is specimens, data, right? And in the field of STS, Bruno Latour famously talked about laboratories as kind of centers of calculation, you know, where data and resources from around the world come together into the lab for, for kind of processing. And so, you know, this raises the question, well, for scientists, well, how do they actually get these materials and these data to move internationally, right? And this is also a kind of diplomatic activity. Uh, and, and in the case of bioinformational diplomacy, you know, the scientists have been quite creative. You know, they found often outside of formal political organizations, they have found philanthropists or others, other people who, who will fund and, and support these kinds of initiatives to get this, this data to move. And so to me, this was, you know, not just the case of, scientists inputting into formal diplomatic processes, but actually scientists engaging in their own kind of informal or infra-diplomatic practices to get, they have to do this as part of their part of their work. But we haven't really studied that conventionally as scholars of international relations as a kind of form of epistemic um, diplomacy. And I suppose data sharing is one key area where the, you know, the scientists know that they can only do this if everybody shares the data. And so they are evolving all these kind of almost under the radar to some extent of formal governments, these kind of systems to get this to get this data to flow. And I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, especially your, your, your point just there. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you said under the radar of governments, uh, it would be interesting also to 
to understand to what extent uh, you know sort of cross border communities form and interact and share things that maybe their governments are not just not aware of, but they would maybe not approve if they would know about it. So there's a really interesting uh, dimension in terms of civil society uh, cooperation versus kind of government interest. Um, and maybe it's quite hard for a government to track that because it just doesn't have the capacity or the expertise um, to understand what's going on at the level of scientific cooperation. That's right. And so, so, um, however, you know, governments are becoming more aware and, and more knowledgeable, especially because of the kind of histories of biocolonialism and, 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 and so forth. And so one of the big pushes um, that we're seeing is the kind of operationalization of the Nagoya Protocol, right? So under the Convention of Biodiversity. So, so they are, especially low and middle income countries, are increasingly saying, look, these these viruses, including their sequence data, are part of our genetic resources. And so we have, in a sense, a kind of juridical or legal ownership over them. And a lot of governments are introducing more restrictions about the sharing of, of this data. And, you know, again, from their concern is if, if, you, if you submit, you know, you can understand what the people were doing in the context of the human genome project to try to prevent the privatization of, of the human genome, right? Making it public domain. But from the perspective of a low and middle income country, it looks like when you submit something to a public domain database, you're almost giving something away to the world that actually has value, you know? And, and so obviously there's a sensitivity there. And so all of this now is, is being, negotiated you know there are also formal diplomatic negotiations going on at the world health organization at the g20 uh, through the nagoya protocol on how to handle sequence data but it is precisely this question of controllability that that nobody really knows you know could we actually control it because the data can be moved so quickly but it's it's the big issue and that's why you know i think that's why i would argue we need this notion of bioinformational diplomacy to kind of capture all of this because it's 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 one of if not the big issues uh, diplomatic issues in, in global health right now and is it uh, you know if, if i could just uh, probe you a little bit there is it is it just an analytical uh, finding uh, or is that also a normative argument um so if you say you know we need these scientists to be also acting as diplomats and overcoming all these barriers and so forth uh, it, it also sounds a little bit like you know, this is something you want to see. You want to encourage, um, not just as a as a field of study, but actually as something that, that 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 is happening in the real world. Or am I reading too much into your in, into your piece there? No, no, I think you're being quite perceptive there, Felix. So the 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 you know, first and foremost, I am trying to make an analytical point, which is just to say, you know, all of this these issues, the barriers around sequence data sharing how you get it to move, all of this is becoming both an informal and formal area of diplomatic practice. And so, you know, it is a kind of analytical concept. I'm trying to capture um, what I think is a very important international development. But one of the things, and this, this kind of ties back to the earlier things we were saying about transdisciplinarity, you know, I am always struck when I read WHO documents, when I read um, other kind of think tank reports on data sharing, of how this is always, you know, framed as a kind of quite technical and practical challenge. You know, there are 
There are barriers and obstacles. There are systems that need to be optimized. We need to have better data curation. We have to have better infrastructures, you know, but the, for me as a scholar of international relations, you know, there's always kind of like the elephant in the room, which is the politics of all of this and, and who benefits, right? And the fact that it's all fine and good to say we want open science, but it is also the fact that different countries around the world have highly differential capacities to harness and use this information to protect their population. There are huge inequalities there. So, you know, that all of this is political. And so I suppose I think where you're right, Felix, is, is you know, I am also trying to introduce greater kind of political inflection uh, into these debates through this notion of bioinformational diplomacy. So it's not just framed as a kind of technical thing and people don't even pay that much attention because it just looks, it is fundamentally who gets access to this data under what conditions is a hugely political question and ultimately, you know, has, can impact life or death matters around the world. So, you know, we can't pretend like the politics are not there. No, of course, of course. So um, let me throw in something I wanted to ask earlier, actually, namely whether you saw religion intervening in this space and affecting the practice of information sharing. So assuming that the modern faith in science to unlock matters of life and death may not be shared in such spaces where religion is a dominant episteme. I mean, I know this is not what you're researching in the article, but I was just wondering whether you came across it as a factor. Yeah, you know, it's not something that I covered explicitly in in the article, but it's, I think, certainly something that would be worth exploring further and thinking about more. I think at the same time, I'm struck um, how actually, you know, across the board of states with different, you know, religions, different cultural values and beliefs, they do all still seem to express quite a strong interest in having these kind of biomedical um, interventions, how they relate to them, how they pitch them and frame them, you know, may change. But a lot of countries, uh, I think, around the world, irrespective of their kind of predominant religious systems, are very sensitive uh, to these issues, especially in a in a in a in a pandemic context. Yeah. So um, zooming out, in conclusion, sort of the broader point, and I think you also make that point in your article, uh, which is why I stumbled across this. Right? You you um, you say, well, we shouldn't just talk about international relations, but informational uh, relations. So in a way, your work links up with you know, other subfields in IR that that see information as a central part of international politics. Um, you know, other prominent examples are, you know, gathering, exchanging, leaking intelligence, so the whole field of intelligence studies, right? And then you have the interest in transnational operation impact of social media networks and so forth. Do you see um, that if you then add your interest in sort of this sharing of bio um, information or scientifically relevant data, do you see that there's sort of a movement in international relations to become much more um, attuned to the importance of information as a as a as a commodity and as a powerful political um, tool or or um, theme um, that maybe wasn't quite so prominent in in IR a decade or two ago? Yeah, I think across all those uh, areas that you've you've just mentioned, you know, information is becoming more central, I suppose, in one sense, you could say, well, international relations has always been about information. You know, when, when has it not been about information? Even from the earliest days of having uh, ambassadors, diplomats, relaying messages, um, uh, espionage, right? To some extent, international relations has always been 
about information. But what we are getting, of course, are new types of information, new infrastructures of information. And, and this is, I think, changing things. And so in the case, you know, I can mostly speak to my area of bioinformational diplomacy, but here I can see really how the rise of this genetic sequence data is beginning to kind of recontour international relations in important ways. It's becoming a new source of power, right? It's, it's inciting new notions of sovereignty through viral sovereignty, for example. It's, you know, uh, entangled with new security strategies around, um, you know, how we protect populations against biological threats. It's tied in with global political economy. We have the rise of biocapital, biovalue, bioeconomies. Um, with diplomacy, right, with informal and formal diplomatic practices. So the rise of this type of information is kind of re recontouring core, core institutions and practices in international relations. And so I think it's the centrality of information. It's a kind of almost, you know, information is constitutive of international relations to some extent. And, you know, there's a nice little arc that you can kind of trace through how, you know, scientists, you know, decoding and tracing life at kind of tiniest molecular scale inside of their laboratories ends up filtering all the way up to the kind of macro, macro politics of, of international relations. So there's a kind of co-production, I suppose, right, between information and international relations. And that's why I kind of say more broadly in the article that I think we also need to think more closely about international relations as informational relations. Great, uh, great, Stefan. Thank you. I think you opened up, um, uh, you know, uh, an important door um, to, uh, to to see international relations um, in ways that uh, you know seem seem to be so important. But I'm not sure that a lot of uh, work has been done in in this interdisciplinary way of bridging uh, political science or international relations with the, the the bio or life sciences. So. So congratulations again for doing a fantastic job um, and, uh, and for sharing those insights uh, with uh, our listeners. Um, and I can only encourage you uh, who are listening to, to read Stefan's work, uh, not just his EGIR article, but also his other publications. It really is uh, worthwhile. So thanks again for joining us and uh, all the best for your future research. Thank you, and Thank you for having me, Felix, and for showing interest in the work. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. <laughs>